This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. You're listening to Bookmark with me, Uma Paganampake Pagan. Joining me on the show today is Elizabeth Green. She's the co-founder, CEO, and editor-in-chief of Chalkbeat, a non-profit news organization committed to covering educational issues in America. She is also the author of the New York Times best-selling book, Building a Better Teacher, which is what she's here to talk to me about today. Elizabeth, welcome to the show. Now, in your book, you essentially argue against this notion of the natural-born teacher. And I'm, and I'm assuming that your ideal would be to completely banish this concept of the natural-born teacher. <laughs> but I was going to ask you, can teaching be taught? And can it be taught to even the least charismatic individual? Um, well, so I think the key idea that I want to get across is one that I had not realized until I encountered uh, the research on teaching, which is that personality really is not a predictor at all of who's going to be an effective teacher. So you can be um, an extrovert or an introvert. You can be uh, very humorous or very serious, and it doesn't matter. All of these people are equally likely to be a good teacher. Instead, what matters is what teachers know and what they do, and the kind of knowledge that effective teachers have and the kind of actions that effective teachers take in schools with students are a lot of the times counterintuitive. So the kind of knowledge you need to teach a subject is different from the kind of knowledge you need just to know it really well. And the kind of actions you have to take to teach violate some of our, um, you know, the ways we usually act in human society. So what this all adds up to is that Everyone needs to learn how to teach. Everyone is going to need to learn that knowledge and that skill set. No one is born knowing those things. We kind of propagated this myth as well, this idea that, you know, what made a good teacher from a bad teacher was that person with those personality traits, that that person who was somehow engaging in conversation that was charming, that was the life of the party, if you will, or the life of the classroom, right? Because you're saying that doesn't matter. Right. What matters, I mean, what does matter is what teachers help students to know and understand. And absolutely that requires some parts of inspiration as well as, uh, you know, simply helping them understand the material. But a person can, a teacher can do that who is doing it quietly without, you know, a boisterous, charismatic personality, just as well as a person who has that personality. And equally true, you know, I think we can all also remember you know, boisterous, charismatic, interpersonally gifted teachers who maybe didn't teach us all of that much about the subject we were supposed to be learning. I mean, if you think about it from a parent's point of view, um, there's that moment when the school year starts and all of the kids are assigned a teacher. And that is a parent, one of a parent's main points of advocacy, right? Parents can say, oh, we, she got the bad teacher, not the good teacher. But I think parents should ask, how do they know who's a good teacher and who's not? And then what's the right form of advocacy? I think, you know, actually studies show that students are really good at knowing 
which teachers are helping them learn. They can really pinpoint that. So I'm not saying that the reputations that teachers earn are necessarily always wrong, but I think that in terms of the point of advocacy, it's one thing to say, well, I'm going to advocate for my kids to get into the best teachers I can find, but maybe something better for the whole society would be if we said instead, what can I do to make sure that the teachers in my kids' school have access to opportunities to learn? Because all teachers also need to constantly learn throughout their careers, and I think that might be a better question than, has my kid been assigned the best teacher? So, so how then do you, I guess, gauge badness from goodness? You know, clearly the, the purpose of uh, education is to help students learn. One of the challenges in a lot of countries is a lack of clarity on the learning goals. But if we can at least decide what the learning goals should be, then you just have to ask, did the teacher do her part to help the students learn the, what she set out to help them learn? Are there different kinds of teachers for different kinds of students? I mean, is that necessary or... In your opinion, does a good teacher kind of transcend those distinctions so you could throw her into a terrible school, I guess, in the inner city or put her in, you know, Beverly Hills somewhere and she'd perform just as well? Well, I think there's a few pieces of that. One is that we often overemphasize the degree to which teaching should be uh, individualized for every single student because the reality is that students are... Uh, when we study the way students learn, we find that there are a lot of commonalities across many different students. So, for example, when students learn um, multiplication from one country to another, um, students will repeat the same common mistakes as they struggle to learn multiplication. There's nothing... There's a lot that's not idiosyncratic. There's a lot that we can anticipate and how all children think about the material that can be really common no matter who you're teaching. Um, but the second piece is that teaching also has to attu- be attuned to the culture that uh, the teacher is operating in. So um, it is important for a teacher to understand where her students are culturally, um, what kind of uh, assumptions they bring to the table about, um, you know, not only academic learning but, and studying, but also how to interact with other people, because that's all an important part of how a teacher will help the students learn. And what do we do with the bad teachers? Because from what I gathered from your book, this idea of teaching being an ability that's, that's, that's learned almost, that would require, I guess, retraining, re-educating. I mean, is, is, there was a Brookings study, right, that just said that you need to fire all the bad teachers. Yes, there's been a movement um, that has said the solution to uh, poor education is to fire bad teachers. And uh, surely not every human being um, is destined to teach. And of course, as in any other profession, if it's not a good fit, people should be able to be exited from a profession. Um, However, uh, I think there's been a real overemphasis on the degree to which um, firing teachers can solve our problems. Um, again, if we, if, we think, if we acknowledge that what teaching requires is this specialized knowledge and skill, it's not going to be enough simply to remove people who are not performing. We're also going to have to consider how to help all of the teachers um, acquire that knowledge and skill because um, in many countries, 
teachers are not supported in knowing those, learning those things at all. So it's no surprise that they struggle to help kids learn. Um, there, there is evidence to suggest that if veteran teachers are given uh, real access to the kinds of experiences that will help them get that, you know, understanding of why students don't understand multiplication or how to help students have discussions of literature, then uh, those teachers really can't change even 25 years into their career. So that's an investment worth making, too. You know, I, I found that argument incredibly counterintuitive, the, the firing teachers thing. I remember when I was reading it, I mean, even if you just use philosophical reduction, you end up with this situation where, where do you draw the line, right? Because at some point, you're always firing someone. Exactly. Who's going to replace the teachers who leave? Correct. Uh, it's going to just be another normal curve. Um, and how are we going? And, and the reality is that the large majority of teachers are not really teaching at their true capacity because they have no access to opportunities to learn how to do it well. Briefly, tell me about the situation in the United States. One of the biggest problems we have here in Malaysia is that obviously there's a shortage of teachers in specific areas. Teachers are forced to teach things they're not experts in or have no knowledge in. And so what happens is teachers are stretched and also, well, they have absolutely no interest in the subject. Does that happen a lot in the United States as well? It does happen to a degree in the United States, yes, in certain settings. Um, certainly there's uh, constant shortages of teachers who are um, interested in teaching the STEM, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics uh, subjects. Um, and also to teach children with special needs, uh, you know, who have learning challenges. So that's absolutely true. One of the things that adds on to this challenge that I think is very often not acknowledged is that it would not be enough simply to take all of the best mathematicians in a country and put them into elementary and uh, primary schools to have them teach uh, mathematics. Um, actually, Mathematicians are less likely than effective elementary school math teachers to have learned the kind of knowledge they need to teach math well. They, when you give them a problem, for example, why would a child think that uh, 49 times 5 equals 405 rather than the correct answer, 245? Mathematicians really struggle to figure that out. Um, another study looked at uh, math majors and, in college were they more likely than non-math majors to have that, this kind of knowledge where you don't just know the subject, but you know how the student misunderstands the subject. And again, they were no likelier than the non-math majors to, to figure that out. So we need to not only find people who are, have an aptitude for the subject they're teaching, but also people who are able to and interested in learning about how students are going to understand that subject, which is Again, not the same thing as knowing the subject well. You know, which brings me to the first, the very first chapter of your book, or, or the or the prologue to your book, which I absolutely love because, and I think it spoke to a lot of people in Malaysia, or at least the people I've given the book to, is that bit when the teacher has to juggle in her brain the variety yeah. of circumstances surrounding who she calls in. I mean, coming from a you know a multiracial society like Malaysia, I guess teachers have that exact same problem. Yes, I was really fascinated to spend time with teachers who have not only uh, taught really well, but made records of what it takes to do that. And uh, the one woman who you're describing the opening scene, Magdalene Lampert, she's a master teacher, and she describes how in a single 
five-minute episode of class just deciding which student to call on. So there's a, a problem on the table, and unexpectedly, a student who represents a marginalized race, African-American student, raises his hand uh, to make try to answer. She knows that he's not likely to have the correct answer, and she has to assess not only what would it mean for the other students to, for him to make a mistake publicly, but what would it mean for him and his social capital in the class? So she has to think at the same time about two different planes of uh, thought and experience. One is, what are the students learning about math? And the second is, what are they learning about racial politics? And also, when he does inevitably make that mistake... She's got to decide who to call on to correct it. She has to decide how to negotiate uh, him to get to help him both save space, which he does. She expertly asks him some questions, which help him um, understand his own mistake in the moment, correct for his mistake. And then she has to pick which other students in the class are going to chime in to move him even farther forward. So it's really an artful episode. And... You know, teachers' lives are filled with um, episodes just like this one where they have to negotiate very challenging dilemmas. I'm speaking today to author Elizabeth Green about what it takes to be a better teacher. After this, I ask her about the common experience route in education. Don't go anywhere. This is Bookmark on BFM 89.9. I'm Wapaganapagepagan, and this is Bookmark. Also, Elizabeth Green is with me on the show today to talk about her book, Building a Better Teacher. Tell me, how effective, in your opinion, is the, I guess, common experience route in education? One system, one standard. Is that holistic, almost, I guess, governmental, federalized approach the way forward? I think there is a lot of strength to be found in commonness. Um, one of the the, so there, often when we think about education, especially in the United States, two different approaches are put on the table as the solution to our problems. One is what we talked about with firing teachers. I call that the accountability approach. The idea is if we can just identify poor performers in the form of schools or uh, teachers and remove them, um, hold them accountable for those poor results, then we will ultimately find the best performers and we will thrive. Um, the other argument is we need radically more autonomy. So we need to get rid of the constraints of too much testing, too much bureaucracy. Um, and, you know, the reality is that neither of these approaches works because neither of them is a systematic effort to help teachers learn the skills they need to teach well. Um, so instead, what is needed is something more complicated. It's more like, honestly, what a great teachers do. What great teachers do is they make it really clear what everyone's going to learn in their classroom, and they give them access to opportunities that are highly likely to lead to learning. And one of the conditions that is required for that to happen in a classroom or in a country is a clear understanding of what we're trying to help people learn to do. And so, yes, it is important to have common learning goals, common course of study, and a common curriculum. It is also important for those to be continuously revised in response to teachers' uh, experience 
using them with real students. Um, but that kind of commonness does not have to be a constraint. It can really be uh, a way to empower teachers to work on the pieces of the puzzle that are so difficult, like those decisions we talked about. You know, we should not outsource to teachers both the problem of how to teach and what to teach. Let's, let's start by having a common idea about what to teach, and then they can do much better um, improving on the, on the how. In your opinion, do you think the role of the teacher has changed in the age of the Internet? Because there's just so much more access to materials, you're saying. Precisely. So the teacher's kind of like, um, it's a very hands-off kind of guidance. Well, 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 that's good. I mean, you don't want too much interference. But at the same time, I think that teacher-mentor kind of relationship is actually quite important. Yes. Um, So, I, I mean, one thing to keep in mind is that Throughout, you know, the last century, every time there was a new technological innovation, educators and those who care about education have said, this is going to change the way education works forever. Nothing will ever be the same after this. And yet, you know, whether it was uh, computers or the Internet, um, when you actually study how education is being delivered, it's not ever changing as much as the predictions and the fear-mongering or, or the very overly optimistic hope would, would have it. Um, that said, I think that uh, digital technology offers unique opportunities as well as challenges. So um, one of the opportunities is that this is a way to connect students to more material and teachers to each other and to learning opportunities with one another. Um, Teachers, you know, globally are starting to communicate uh, using digital technology. um, You know, I've discovered Google Hangout groups of math teachers um, that are truly global, uh, as well as groups of teachers who share ideas about how to teach different topics with one another. Um, And then, of course, uh, teachers can, if they want to, teachers can use the access to materials to help them get better materials to give their students. So it doesn't have to be a free-for-all. If the teacher continues to have the role as a very careful instructional leader, then she can harness these materials for good for students. That's one of the more underreported things, isn't it? I mean, every time we talk about technology, we talk about Khan Academy or this or that, and we always talk about the focus on the students. But, of course, technology has revolutionized how teachers interact with one another and then, and I guess, learn from one another. Yes, and I think that's actually um, more important, potentially, than what students have access to. So the Khan Academy idea is that, uh, you know, perhaps if we, we can use this digital technology, we can make it possible for one great teacher to have access to all of the students all around the world through digital technology. But that suggests that teaching is just lecturing, right? Like that all you need to teach is a one-way conversation where a person is delivering material. And while that is one important element of teaching, that is not the only important element. Another hugely important element is having a conversation with students to understand what they themselves are thinking and respond in the moment to their thoughts. And that is not something that uh, is easy to scale. So if we could start from scratch, Elizabeth, what would be the ideal scenario for you? Where would you start? If you were setting up a kind of teacher training college or something, where would you start? 
Yeah, well, I think that some of the really inspiring work that is going on um, starts with model that actually um, was the original model in the United States for how teachers are prepared. And that model was called the Normal School. Um, It was an institution that was solely dedicated to preparing teachers and to studying teaching. And normal schools would have attached laboratory schools where students uh, were taught by master teachers who also not only taught their students but future teachers. And truly these schools became a laboratory for the study of teaching. And I think that in the best um, examples of how uh, students are being educated in this country and teachers are being educated, that's the same model that still applies. It's a place where uh, students and teachers are simultaneously learning together in structured environments. You dedicate a, a big section of your book to the history of, well, where it went wrong and where the people who were studying teaching actually didn't care all that much about teaching yeah. teaching, right? Yeah, so the, we have this um, great tradition of the normal school that I just described, but um, what and unfortunately the normal school died out because it got beat by a, comp- a competitor, which was the university model. And the university realized that there was a lucrative business in the training of teachers. Um, lots of teachers, of course, the largest profession in most countries, and so lots of... Uh, gain to be had. But the problem was that at universities, the way they were set up, the way disciplines were structured, uh, the people who were recruited to run the training of teachers were incentivized to do research on what became anything but pedagogy, as one scholar put it, or anything but teaching. Um, The researchers came from disciplines like psychology or history or economics and Instead of studying teaching as a science in its own right, they would instead study the application of their discipline to the study of education broadly. So, as a result, we have a lot of interesting research on the history, psychology, sociology of education. We have very little uh, knowledge about the science of teaching itself. Is there much progress now uh, with regards to the science of teaching? Are there more people working on that? I think there's progress, but it's slow. And there also is an important question about what kind of, what's the best way to produce that knowledge. So whereas in a field like um, economics or a field like psychology, there are agreed upon rules for how to determine, um, you know, a true uh, research conclusion, conclusion, and that often happens you know, inside the academy, inside a laboratory. Um, in, a, in a field like teaching, you know, practitioners really need to be involved just as much as uh, a formal lab code researcher. So the form in which it's, uh, knowledge creation about teaching should take, I think, is an interesting question. Um, I really admire the model that is used in Japanese elementary schools. Um, they're set up quite like the normal school model that I mentioned, where professors of education are connected to actual primary schools, and they um, study as a regular part of their practice. They go in and observe classrooms, and this is part of their scholarship, is responding to things they see in real-life classrooms and having a dialogue with teachers themselves. Do we have to 
I mean, and taking it taking it all the way back, do we have to start teaching kids how to teach and not just how to learn? Teaching kids, young kids. Yeah, I mean, because you know, for the longest time, when we when we're starting out, we're always taught how to learn, and that's kind of the focus of our entire progress through education. Mm. But should there be mm. a an element of you know? getting kids to master the art of teaching, to communicate, to teach one another almost. I mean, so those kinds of techniques become ingrained because in my opinion, it doesn't matter if you become a teacher. I think if having that skill makes you a better doctor, makes you a better engineer, makes you a better lawyer, uh, makes you a better writer. Fascinating. Fascinating. That's interesting. I think that there are elements, I I think there are elements of um, the skill of teaching which absolutely will help people in many different professions. For example, um, you know, something simple like running a meeting, facilitating a discussion at work, um, trying to get consensus toward an idea or uh, training employees to um, take on complex tasks. Uh, These are all teaching problems. And so I agree. I think that there's a lot that the rest of us can learn from great teachers, too. That was author Elizabeth Green. Her book is called Building a Better Teacher, and it is a fantastic argument for why we remain entrenched in a broken system and not just in America. Go check it out. I highly recommend it. I'm Uma Pagan, Ampage Pagan, and this has been Bookmark on BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.